Welcome to On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamish and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophies, observations and theories, what works for us and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. On today's episode, we're talking to Mike Joseph. Mike Joseph is a radio personality, sex educator, and host of the podcast Detoxicity, by men, about men, for everyone. It's a podcast that looks at the question, what does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? The podcast covers a wide range of topics, from relationships to creativity, from psychology to sexuality, with thoughtfulness, sensitivity, and humor. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me. So it's glad great to have to be you. Here. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, along with uh, doing all that stuff, you're also an advocate for mental health. You speak at schools and on panels uh, about depression and anxiety, which uh, both of us uh, know a fair amount about. (laughs) Um, And you also created the initiative Mindful Vinyl. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? So I I have been uh, speaking publicly about my own mental health issues for, for a few years now. And uh, my day job is in music. I work in the music industry. Um, and uh, a close friend of mine and coworker had put together a program for uh, cancer awareness, specifically breast cancer awareness, where every year he would uh, find a bunch of records and put them out on pink vinyl. And it would be a limited, they'd all be limited edition and they would raise money for a cancer charity. And because mental health and uh, mental wellness is so such a prevalent topic not just in the world but amongst creatives and musicians specifically i was like why don't we adapt that so that there is a musical play to it so uh we put out i think 10 or 11 records at this point on green vinyl uh, an organization called the jed foundation which works with young people high school and college age 15 to 25 uh young people uh on providing mental health resources for them and uh, it's peer-to-peer stuff. It's, um, you know, things with their, their educators and counselors in school. And uh, they're just a fantastic organization based uh, in New York City, where I live. So I just figured tying music and mental health together was such an obvious thing to do. Why not figure out a way to do it? And that's how Mindful Vinyl came about. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, Thank you. I, and, and you know, and and uh, what a what a great time to tie that in. You're sort of without with the last decade and the resurgence of interest in in vinyl as yes. you know as a medium. Yes, indeed. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's how that came about, and you know, it's really validating to see how um, how people have reacted to these and how people just react in general when someone gives them the permission to feel what they're going through in terms of depression and anxiety. I think uh, for a lot of people, mental health is still so taboo. Uh, They have uh, difficulty talking about it and they need the permission of someone that already is talking about it to sort of feel the way that to feel okay, feeling the way that they're feeling. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it really does tie into a lot of the, you know, 
detoxifying masculinity that is, you know, so much about the toxic masculinity involves, like, sucking everything in and just holding it down and never dealing with shit. Yes. And, you know, being allowed to have feelings um, is, you know, kind of a good start. In hey, What a concept, right? Like, it's it's crazy. Um, you know, I come from a, a, a pretty repressed environment and I had to learn how to, and I'm still learning, like it's not uh, by any means uh, perfect science. I had to learn how to put myself in a place where I was comfortable having uh, intimate, open, honest conversations about the way I was feeling. And, you know, I mean, I had the benefit of, of being in a particularly now, at any rate, being in a particularly open-minded, progressive environment. Um, but there are so many people who don't have that, that option. Um, and one thing I try to do with the podcast is just give people, you know, again, it's kind of like giving people permission almost like telling people, look, it's okay to feel confused or, um, you know, to feel like you need to talk to somebody about something. It's okay to feel depressed. Like this is, these are normal things to feel. What isn't normal is the repression of those things and, and, you know, that's where it gets damaging. So I'm trying to kind of cut people off at the pass and say, hey, you're going through this stuff. There's nothing abnormal about that. But there are things that you can do to kind of put yourself into a better place. And that starts with being able to express the fact that you are feeling a certain way. Well, and, you know, for, for a lot of people, they they um, they may not identify with the idea of being depressed. You know, they... they uh, um, you know, uh, especially um, around toxic masculinity, the idea is that, you know, there's a weakness to that. And so, you know, um, just it can often manifest, uh, you know, as anger and irritability um, or, you know, or, or even just anhedonia where you're just not getting a lot of enjoyment out of out of things. You know, uh, they, they they expect depression to just look like somebody who um who won't get out of bed um and um you know and and so you know anxiety is, uh, as well can can manifest as um as emotions that that may not look like anxiety yeah and there's a couple of things to unpack with that one is that depression and anxiety look different from person to person so there's no one size fits all level of depression or level of anxiety that, that, you know, is repetitive from person to person. And, and the other thing is just that I don't think that a lot of guys, and I can only speak for myself and the people that I spend time with are really given a toolkit to deal with emotions in general. Like we're taught to be violent and we're taught to be aggressive, but any kind of anything that shows sensitivity or, or fallibility is perceived as weak or, you know, effeminate, uh, which I mean, conflating those two is so wrong, but it, it, it's just, it's, it's, you know, guys can get through anything and they have stiff upper, upper lips and they don't feel emotions and blah, blah, blah. And I think that just leads to like that, all down the line that just leads to a bunch of shit. It just leads to, to huge problems. Yeah, I, I, I'm like I, I wonder what the average age that 
um, that that a boy is told to be a man. Ah. Right. It, it, that's, it, that's a good question. It must be like somewhere between seven and 11 years old. Yeah, I was thinking around there. Um, and, uh, you know, and and, um, you know, and and adult men will will steer, still hear it at, at various points in, in their life. And uh, and usually uh, usually it's it's either around um you know, around, uh, you know, uh, vulnerability or perceived weakness, or often it's just manipulation, you know, um, trying to, trying to control somebody's actions. And so it's, it's like, well, you know, uh, just, just be a man, just get it done. Yeah. I can remember even earlier than that, just getting the message that, you know, big boys don't cry. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, from, you know, four or five years old, when, if you fall and, and skin your knee, it hurts you cry if you feel something emotional uh like you're supposed to hold that stuff in um and i think it's easier to accept again like i can't speak outside of my experience it was easier for the adults in my life to accept crying when there was an injury involved you know or if i had like a doctor chasing you with a needle or something like that <laughs> then it than it was for me to, you know, respond to any sort of non-physical hurt. Yeah. And that's, you know, so much of our, our messed up sort of societal views about like sort of invisible, you know, injuries or disabilities, you know, those of us living with mental health stuff that just can't be seen. So that's, you know, those things aren't seen as being valid the way that a broken leg is. Sure. And that, you know, we'll often, you know, come up with something physical as an excuse to get out of something. Like, you know, if I am am too depressed to go to work, I will probably message my patients and say, I have a migraine. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm too depressed to come to work isn't really what you would say to people. But a migraine, oh, everyone understands those are really debilitating. And so that's that's a really reasonable reason to to not be able to go to work but the yeah we we just it doesn't feel valid to say like i just i just can't even today yeah yeah and it should be and and, and you're absolutely right it, it makes it's very easy to say i have a migraine or i have a stomach ache or i have a, a bad cold or something like that and i'm not coming in uh, one thing I have, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open about my mental health to uh, pretty much everybody. I like, I'm an open book at this point. And, you know, if I'm having a, a bad mental health day, I will tell my boss, hey, look, I'm having a bad mental health day. I can't, like, it's not going to work out today. I can't hang. Um, and I, you know, I will take, now I don't take them often, but I will take a self-care day and, and just, you know, have give myself permission to have those days when look, my brain's just not working the way it needs to work. I can't concentrate on work. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay in bed or I'm just going to take a day and kind of refocus and recalibrate and I'll be golden from here on out, you know, to, you know, to get four good days of me is better than getting like five mediocre days when I'm not, you know, when I'm not feeling it, but yeah. you know, Four good days in one reset day is, 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 I think, probably ideal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and um, our, our work culture is not 
very typically very accommodating of yeah. the idea of um, the value of recharging. You know, your 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 employer doesn't even want to acknowledge the fact that um, that that uh, that you might have five mediocre days because you're feeling poorly. What they want is is five days of a hundred percent capacity, which nobody can do. Your yep. you know your cap your output and capability is going to be variable throughout those four days, five five days. But that's that's something that that employers are just uh, absolutely unwilling to accept. Which is crazy to me because it's it's human nature. Yeah. No one, I mean, well, I can't say no one, very few people can focus 100% on one thing throughout the course of an eight-hour day. It's just not, it's illogical, completely illogical. Um, so for employers, and I, you know, I think a lot of employers don't just expect 100%, they expect 150%. Like, you have to give blood yeah. Uh, um, and at the end of the day, and it, and it took me really having some some crises to get to a point where I was like, you know, I love my job. I have a work ethic. I'm very I take a lot of pride in my work ethic. But, you know, if I die, heaven forbid, you know, uh, my job will just, you know, they'd be like, oh, it's so sad. Mike is dead. Oh, we got to replace him. It's not going to be, yeah. you know, they're not going to stop because I stop. Yeah. Who's who's on our contact list that's available today? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you talk about um, employers wanting 150 percent and, um, you know, and, and that there's there's a there's a cost to that. If you're if you're working 150 percent, either that means that um, that some of those days you're going to be at, you know, 30 percent capacity for those 16 hours or um you know, you're going to burn out and have to yeah. take, you know, a couple months off or switch jobs because, yep. you know, you, you just can't handle that job anymore. Yeah. And I, it's important to have a life that is fuller than just your career. Yeah. And if you're devoting 150% to your career constantly, what bandwidth do you have for the other things and people and places and, 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 and you know, parts of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so do you think that, um, like, how do you feel like your, your views on masculinity have changed over, you know, the past like 10 years or like, you know, if there's been sort of shifts over time, um, uh, uh no. <laughs> <laughs> words can be hard sometimes. No, I, I get it. I, it, it's changed a lot. Um, I grew up in a very, um, I'm trying to figure out some charitable words to use here, a very, it, it wasn't a very progressive environment. Um, I, it, it was very, um, you know, very, not a he-man kind of, but uh, a very traditionally masculine, you know, man being the breadwinner. And the man being, uh, you know, not necessarily emotionally like the women in my in my household did the nurturing and the men in my household did the working, I guess. I, I don't know. It, it was just a, a very traditional, like machismo based household. And I grew up 
and and my culture. You know, I grew up in in Brooklyn, New York, in the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, pre-internet, pre-gentrification, um, at a time when, uh, you know, again, it was very machismo-based, masculine-based immigrant culture. And one thing I think, two things I think, saved me from adopting that culture uh, as as an adult. Um, one was my mental health issues, um, you know, ultimately dealing with depression and dealing with anxiety and dealing with all of the other things I deal with, which I actually didn't really start getting help for until I was in my, my early 30s. Um, and the other was my sexuality and knowing that I was queer um, and certainly not knowing what to do with that for a very long time, but knowing that there was something that made me not like everyone else. So uh, I think ultimately I, I celebrate those things because I think had I been a straight uh, uh, um, non-depressed, non-anxious person, I could have very easily fallen into that same uh, macho uh, trap that a lot of other people that I, I grew up with and a lot of people in my family fell into. Um, but thankfully, I, I, I sought out people and situations that expanded my mind and that I was able to learn from and kind of figure out that there were multiple ways to be that there are, a you know, and that really what being a, a man, what being an adult, what being a human is, is being evolved and being willing to further evolve and sort of not being stuck in your ways and being willing to learn from people and being willing to have empathy and, uh, you know, not being binary about anything and just kind of understanding that just about everything in the world is on, on a continuum or a spectrum and that there are, are no absolutes other than the fact that you're born and the fact that you're going to die someday. So I, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's been a process. Um, and I think really only in the last five, 10 years have I really consciously been been delving into figuring all that stuff out um and you know it's ongoing i mean i'm, I'm 45 years old and and still learning new things every day from uh the life that i'm living in you know especially the people around me um but it's uh you know it, it's it's stuff that i'm going to be learning for the rest of my life it's it's interesting um you know hearing you talk about how uh you know some some of these experiences that sort of um, you know, made you uh, diverge from the status quo inherently, um, you know, then, uh, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, being queer, um, you know, having, uh, having depression, anxiety, you know, how these things, um, you know, kind of help to carve you away from, you know, the rest of the, the path that might have been uh, laid out for you. And yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's, I, I've actually, uh, thought a lot about how, you know, is sort of a, a non-scientific assessment that depression and anxiety do seem to be quite over-represented uh, over in non-monogamy and in, you know, even in, uh, swinging and, you know, in all kinds of alternative, uh, kink. you know, kink, yeah, kink, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, um, and, you know, and, and so I, I, I think you might've touched on what, what the, um, you know, what the key to that 
might be that you know that that essentially you already have something that makes you feel not like everybody else that you're mm. that you're different and outside and so that that might make it um easier to see those uh those other possibilities as you know a path that you could go down i've thought about that and it makes a lot of sense when you're out about one thing it almost makes it easier to be out about all of the other things um, me being ultimately out about being, uh, you know, a queer man led to me being more open about being out about my mental health diagnoses, made me more open to being out about being non-monogamous or and polyamorous. Um, it's just, you know, once you've done the coming out process in whatever uh, iteration of yourself you're coming out as it kind of makes it easier to do it over and over again because you're like well if, if i've already gotten through this one i've gotten over this one hump uh <laughs> you know might as well uh, get through the others because it's really all about being out is about saying kind of the same kind of fuck you to what other people think about you <laughs> it, it, it's really kind of saying okay look this is the thing that some people are not comfortable with. And what I am and who I am is more important than anyone else's discomfort. And once you get over that hump with one thing, it's like dominoes falling. You can be a little bit more open about other things because you've already kind of, you've already almost like repossessed the narrative, this self narrative. Like you're already living in your truth, so it makes it easier to live in your truth about other things as well. It's I I also think there's there's two sides to that to that coin as well, right? Like the the one side is the you know you know hey uh, fuck you uh, I exist, but the other side of that coin is you know is not to the people that you're uh, that you're counter to, but the people that um, you know that that you relate to, you know, and and you know, signaling to them, you know, hey, I'm here. We're here too. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it it it. Going back to what I said earlier, I think when you're out, um, and this isn't something that I, I necessarily recommend. I mean, I think it's really important to live in your truth, but to do so at your own pace. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that it's really good to be an example to other folks who may be attempting to figure out where their place is or, or what they are, that you can be who you are. And like the world's not going to, your world is going to change, but it's not going to change, probably not going to change to the point where like everybody hates you or everybody, you become an outcast or anything like that. Like there might be an adjustment period for some folks, and you might lose some folks that you thought were important to you. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it, it's more important for you to be at peace with yourself than it is to get approval from everybody that you think you need approval from to, to, to live. No, you, you, you might you might think it's going to be devastating. And you're right. You know, you you may push some people away. You know, but you're also learning things about those people and about right. maybe why, you know, why that's okay. And but at the same time, you're also going to 
draw other people in, you know, whether it's, whether it's new people in your life or, you know, people that, that you already know and love that, um, that are going to be drawn closer because of the, you know, sort of the vulnerability that you've shown them. Yeah. I think vulnerability and honesty is attractive to people. It's attractive to me. Um, and I think that it does draw people who are maybe at a distance closer in because they feel like they know the real you. Yeah. And as you said, it's, you know, people have to go at their own pace. You know, it's not always safe for people for a lot of different reasons. Um, particularly in your country where there are not protections (laughs) against, you know, um, you know, your job or your housing or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, We are, you know, very fortunate uh, here in Canada that things are different as far as that stuff goes. But, you know, it it still can be dangerous for you. Um, But yeah, for those of us who are privileged enough to be to be safe, um, it, you know, it can be really important to, to, you know, be as out as we can about a lot of things. Yeah, I, 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 I think that, that for those of us who do have a lot of, of safety and privilege, um, you know, we, we, we do talk about people going at their own pace, but, you know, I also think it, it's maybe okay to kind of, um, you know, kind of nudge and encourage people, uh, you know, maybe in a general way rather than specifically poking a specific person, but, you know, just generally encourage people who have the safety and capacity to be as out as they can mm-hmm. in order to, you know, just to make it, because that helps make it safer for the people who categorically can't. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to live in New York and uh, New York City. I was just talking to a friend about this a little uh, earlier this morning is a place where you can be. And I, I don't want to sound like a postcard or uh, the tourism board. <laughs> it's a place where you can be whoever you want. Like if you are. A, a, no one gives you a second look. Uh, and New York City wasn't always like that. It wasn't like that uh, when I was younger, but it, it's evolved to a, a point, a place where you can be whoever, and and it's okay for the most part. Whereas if you live in, I don't know, if you live in Iowa or you live in New Mexico or you live in, uh, you know, places in the country that I, I presume are significantly much less open-minded and don't have those protections in place, like you're going to want to uh, be protective of yourself. Um, It's really encouraging to me to see friends of mine that have children that live in places like Minnesota and Virginia uh, who are openly trans or openly queer um, and are just living their lives in, in school at 14, 15, 16 years old, a time when I would have been scared shitless Mm -hmm. to be out about anything in my life. Like it gives me so much encouragement that people are doing this and, and they're not running into huge issues the way that I thought I would have uh, when I was. Oh, sorry. Like, but you probably would have like, because you know, like we're, we're a couple of years older than you. Um, and like the world was a very different place. Yes, that is absolutely um, true. So it like it is really heartening to see these young kids like able to really live their truth. But yeah, that 
like I don't think it was possible when we were 14, 15, because, no. you know, that was, it was just such a different time. And it's, it, yeah, it's wonderful to, to get to see, you know, the freedom and, and people knowing who they are in a way. Like, I didn't even hear about bisexuality until my 20s. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally it. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't know that that was a thing. You know, I, I knew I liked boys, but I sure spent a lot of time looking at the women in my brother's porno magazines. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I wasn't a lesbian because I liked boys. So therefore, you know, um, and then, yeah, learning that there were other <laughs> options, you know, um, you know, wasn't till in my twenties and was also wasn't until I moved to like Vancouver after having grown up in a small town in, in the Northern part of the province. Um, that also was a different experience, but yeah, it was like the, the culture was shifting as we were sort of getting into the, the early nineties there. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no worries. I I, I was just gonna gonna mention that you know I'm I'm uh, I'm about the same age as you, Mike, and and I I went to high school in uh, you know pretty progressive part of of our province, and um and it categorically was not safe to be uh, out as as queer or even perceived as queer. You know the yep. um you know a a friend of mine was uh, was quite bullied because uh his older brother wasn't uh you know who had, who had graduated years before was gay and and when his his brother was outed you know he he was a he was a an absolute pariah um yep. you know so so yeah the 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 the, uh, the consequences to that uh you know in high school and and I I just remember how you know how great it was in you know as people were going into college and university and just just seeing seeing people who who had clearly been closeted now being so happy and open and, and out yeah it's a great thing i mean i think about my high school experience my graduating class was 1250 it was you know a lot of kids and i knew of one boy young man uh in my 1,250 person graduating class who was openly gay or bisexual in, in New York city in 1993. Um, you know, our, our LGBTQ student group. Um, I mean, I wasn't in it, but that group met in private. Like there was not even, there were no signs. There was nothing. It was word of mouth and they met in private out of fear. Um, it was really heartening for me personally to go back for my 25th uh, year reunion a couple of years ago and see signs all over the campus uh, about the you know LGBTQ and allies student group. And it's like, wow, okay, there's progress because again, like 25 years ago, there was one person who had the, the, the courage, the guts to be out uh, uh, publicly. Um, and now it's, it's so supported. It, it's just, it's a great thing. But we still have so much work to do. Yeah. We sure do, yeah. I uh, I just want to circle back to something that you were talking about earlier about you know growing up in you know with um, you know sort of a a certain roadmap 
to to masculinity and you know and the um the the man as a as a as a breadwinner um and you know and not as a as a uh, uh you know sort of a caretaker and stuff and and one of the things that makes me think of is how um toxic masculinity um doesn't always look toxic it does you know it's it's not always angry it's not always you know it's not it's not always abuse um but it can be things like um emotional availability um you know or lack of it and um but also you know a lot of the the sort of traditional roles that we that we have for men and fathers you know they may actually look positive for the from the outside you know the uh we like we say we think of the breadwinner and the protector and you know um and being sort of the uh, uh the strength of the family but you know what we're also talking about is um is someone who doesn't show weakness who doesn't show vulnerability who's um you know who's who you know often imparting his strength is policing the emotions of of his family um and uh you know and and additionally one one of the things i find interesting about a lot of the positive attributes that we that we give to masculine figures is we imply that those are the exclusive purview of men you know so women aren't aren't um you know aren't providers women aren't protectors you know and and you know and that's categorically untrue and and the I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of damage done to to all of us by even some of the uh, some of the things that that might at first glance look positive or neutral about our masculine models. I agree. I I am not going to knock the fact that um, you know yes you want to go out and provide a. a, a um, uh, shelter and 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 money and resources for your family or for your loved ones or whoever and you know anybody can do that. I think what you know where the toxicity comes into play really is from an emotion an emotional standpoint. It's for it's not not being emotionally available for others and not being emotionally available for yourself. Not being able to recognize emotions or repressing emotions. Um, and burying that stuff in things like violent behavior or substance abuse mm. or uh, emotional distance and, and, and that kind of stuff. I think that's where a lot of folks have just gotten like completely screwed up. Um, you know, people associate being a strong person with uh, with being able to quote unquote keep your emotions in check. When yeah. I re I really think being an unemotional person is kind of a like for me that's like a warning sign. <laughs> like if if, if you're a, an unemotional person, I'm kind of like okay, maybe you're a little bit of a sociopath. Like I should I be worried? Like what's going on here? Yeah, either a sociopath or a powder keg. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Or you know. Something's going to happen after you have a couple of beers where you're just going to start screaming at people or become violent. I mean, I grew up with, a, you know, I was raised primarily by my grandparents, you know, and my grandfather was a very emotionally distant person. And his emotions, which usually were anger and not much else, 
really manifested themselves in drinking. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he would become, you know, sort of explosive and demonstrative after he'd had a couple. Um, but that was the only way that he was able to get his emotions out. But he was also, you know, born in 1927 and wasn't raised to have any kind of emotional vocabulary. And, uh, you know, you get to a certain point in your life, I think, when you're, you know, either can't learn the vocabulary or don't want to learn the vocabulary or don't recognize that you need to learn the vocabulary. And, and that's that's kind of a sad thing. Yeah, you know, it's uh, um, it. I've seen a lot of uh, mental health resources that talk about how um, having, you know, very specific words for your feelings helps you to, to process them a lot more, you know, and so a lot of men, the, the only, you know, the only feelings that they have labels for is like, you know, happy or angry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, uh, bringing, bringing the nuance into that is like, okay, so um, you know, what is it that's making you angry? What is, what is the feeling that, um, that is behind that, that's upsetting you, that's, that the anger is actually coming from? Yeah. And I think it can be hard to, if you're not used to being able to unpack that, it can be hard to get to a point where you're able to, I remember, you know, probably my first couple of years of therapy be like, how do you feel? And I'd be able to explain how I felt. Why do you feel that way? Uh, <laughs> like you're, you're not used to digging that deep. Um, so it, it's really uncomfortable. Um, and, and you don't always have the words to be able to express the why or the how of why you're feeling what you're feeling. Yeah, being able to, to connect those things when, you know, you've been sort of trained so thoroughly to have a disconnect right, um, can be really, really difficult to, to figure out. Um, and that's one of the things that, that also, you know, comes with things that you're not allowed to do in that traditional kind of toxic masculine teachings is, is expressing affection. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I, that like jumped out to me when Flick and I met was how physically affectionate he and his male friends were. Like they really, like they hugged each other, hello and goodbye. And, you know, although I had men in my life who were affectionate, like that was just never something I'd seen in, you know, just like watching male friendships. And it was just sort of this like, oh, and I hadn't noticed it was missing until I noticed it was there. Yeah, I, I can, I can, uh, I've had that experience as well. And my, my male relatives and I, I, I don't think really started expressing even the most vague physical, uh, expressions, uh, until I was in my mid twenties. I don't know that I'd hugged a, a male relative before. And it took me, it's weird because it's like, okay, I have, you know, had penises in my mouth before, but I, 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 you know, hugging somebody feels so strange. And I remember the first time, like a straight friend kissed me goodbye. And I was just kind of like in shell shock, like straight people do this, like outside of the realm of sexuality, like this doesn't make sense to me. Um, and it took me a while to get used to, to those expressions coming from people outside of a sexual context. And now, like, I am, like, I hug everybody. 
um, <laughs> with with their permission. Um, but I am I am a very affectionate person. I love to cuddle. I love to hug. And you know, in a completely platonic sense, like I love all of that stuff. And it's weird to have been taught for so long that oh, if you want to touch someone, if you want to hug somebody there must be a sexual connotation to it. But no, that's absolutely not the case. You can be physically intimate with somebody without wanting them to be naked while you're doing it. Um, so trying to sort of work out that dichotomy in my in my head as a queer person took a while just because, uh, you know, my experience growing up was that men did not have any kind of uh, physical interaction with each other. It also makes me think of, of something else that's come up sort of since since being non-monogamous and, you know, since sort of conversations in the culture have shifted. Um, and it comes to sort of the gender roles that, that we had discussed um, briefly and how in relationships sort of it's laid out that you know this person does this and this person does this this person's maybe yeah the breadwinner the protector and this person you know also is the breadwinner also is the protector and also does all of the labor around the house <laughs> right right yeah. and and keeps track of whose birthday it is and knows what shoe size everyone has <laughs> and knows what the food allergies of someone's second cousin's aunt are and you know so and so and so um and it's been really interesting to to have different discussions about about that and and where sort of traditional uh expectations of masculinity have really left a lot of the sort of invisible femme labor as it is sometimes called um and that is truly labor um, to have to be on top of all that stuff. I, I think my grandmother was really the person who uh, was on top of all that stuff when, when I was growing up. And it, 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 it was exhausting. I mean, just to kind of view it from a distance from her vantage point, like it, it had to have been exhausting to, you know, know what all the kid sizes were and know what school everybody was going to and know what everybody's birthday was. And then, you know, do all of the arranging and the cooking and blah, 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 blah. It's just like, you know, in family type situations and communal type situations, like there should not be, and ideally there would not be uh, a split based on on gender. And as someone who is, I mean, in in my, if I were to have a sort of communal family situation, like I am am, am a, a, a homo romantic, so there wouldn't be a gender role in that anyway. But. Uh, just the idea, the traditional idea that all of that labor should be bestowed upon one person and not among all parties involved, uh, you know, I think is really, ex I mean, it's hearing it is exhausting. <laughs> Experiencing it uh, has got to be like, I can't even imagine. It's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think that for a lot of, um, a lot of couples, particularly um, who who would think of themselves as, um, you know, as as being, uh, you know, progressive, as being, you know, equal. Um, there's there's still this uh, this like relationship entropy that occurs because, um, you know, people uh, like nobody fucking loves chores, but you would be surprised how many men 
um, have convinced themselves that, you know, it's okay that their partner does, uh, you know, all of the housework because, you know, um, you know, well, they, they care about that more than I do. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're better at it than I am. Like they, they, there are just so many things that they tell themselves when, you know, really, you know, uh, the reality is that, um, you know, the, these are things that, that have to be done and, um, and you just haven't examined the, uh, you know, the, the inherent sexism in what you've allowed the, uh, the division of labor to, to, to be. It's not, it's not like they've sat down with a list and said, okay, I'm going to do this and you're going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to do this and you're going to do this, this, this. Um, it's, it's just, um, you, you know, um, it's happened because of social scripts that mm-hmm. have steered it that way, but they just, they've just never examined it, you know, and, and I, I, you know, and by they've never examined it. What I really mean is that the guy has never examined never it because right. I'm almost certain that in almost every case, the woman is very aware of the fact that, that, you know, she's the one doing all this stuff and, um, you know, and is, has some, degree of resentment you know absolutely justified resentment about it yeah i i would i would agree with you there i think there's two issues at play there i mean one is a social constructs issue and the other is a communication issue which ties back into the social constructs issue <laughs> just that you know i think uh old habits die hard for a lot of people yes mm-hmm. and uh you know communication is is wired into all of that as well where you know, people are not taught to communicate in an honest fashion uh, because they're afraid of of confrontation or whatever it is. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, being conscious of things like that and, and speaking about things like that kind of helps everybody do better. Well, I, I, I actually, you know, I just want to give another example just because, you know, I know that, that there there might be listeners who might hear themselves reflected in some of these things and maybe, and maybe they'll, they'll, they'll give some thought to it. But a, a, another really common one is, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to do as, as much of this, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll do, I'll do my, my part or, or even more of it. All you have to do is ask. <laughs> right. And, and so the, the entire act of like asking and, implies that you know uh one person is the um you know is the manager they're the one that that has to be aware of everything that he's doing and decide whether um you know whether it's uh it's okay you know at this particular time to ask the other person to to jump in and um you know so yeah the the you know just why didn't you ask why didn't you ask for help and it's it's like well you know, you, um, like you said, old habits die hard and, you know, and when you've spent a lifetime of not looking around your house and, and thinking about what might need to be done, um, yeah, that, that's, that is going to take some, that's going to take some work. That's going to take some personal labor. Yeah. You got to retrain yourself. Yes. And it's an interesting thing. And as you said, like in a, in homo homo romantic relationships, you know, I'm sure this manifests differently. And I'm, I'm also curious as to, you know, I, I know that absolutely, 
you know, not all relationships are going to look exactly like this in any way, shape or form. But I'm, I'm sort of wondering how much there is that sort of if there is someone, you know, in the relationship who tends to be sort of more on the effeminate side, whether those same, you know, sort of stereotypes kind of end up fulfilling themselves there. Um, right, because they're they're playing that same script from a different angle, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Or whether just everyone actually knows how to iron a shirt, so it just kind of happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do know how to iron a shirt. Anyway. <laughs> you know, my grandmother was very much a stickler about going out looking presentable. So every uh, uh, Sunday night, I had to iron my clothes for the week. But um, I, I, you know, I tend to date people who are I, trying to be sensitive about this, uh, who are um, less effeminate or flamboyant. Um, so in my relationships, there really hasn't been, you know, like you get some really old school, like backwards people like, well, which one is the guy and which one yeah. is the girl? And, and my relationships don't have that dynamic. Um, but I do know, uh, uh, you know, male, male and female, female couples uh, who do, you know, either uh, tacitly or openly have that sort of, you know, more mass, more traditionally masculine, more traditionally feminine dynamic that, you know, and it works out like that. But, you know, I mean, as I, right now, as a single person, ideally, you know, look, it's like, let's let's play to our strengths. You know, you cook better than me. You do the cooking. I'll wash the dishes. You know, I know how to iron clothes. I'll I mean, not that I really want to wear clothes that need to be ironed, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure that I'll do the, you know, I'll do the laundry and, and, you know, you do something else. It, it, you know, uh, yeah. you know, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship where things are sort of broken down by perceived gender roles. Yeah. And just like so if something needs to be done, we're both capable of doing it or we're all capable of doing it. Let's just figure out who does it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, looking at, at life, like a partnership, um you know that you're you're all you're working together for a thing and that rather than yeah that you know you have these have a manager and employees kind of thing (laughs) um and uh yeah that you know it is you are actually building things together when you work together on something yeah i mean one thing i try to stress when i'm talking about relationships is a partnership model versus an ownership model it's like you know, I, I, I don't want to be owned by anybody. I don't want to own anybody. I, I understand the concept of free will. So the idea that I own anybody or manage anybody is just kind of silly to me, just as a, as a concept. Um, I want you to be, if I'm in a relationship with you, I want you to be in the relationship with me because you want to be in that relationship, not because of any perceived power dynamic or, uh, because you want to feel like you belong to me or I belong to you or anything like that. Like I'm, you know, while not wanting it to sound like we're business partners, you know, (laughs) I I, I definitely wanted to be like, Hey, look, we're doing this because we choose to, and we want to be together. You know, this is, this is a decision that we're, we're consciously making every, you know, consciously or unconsciously making every moment. And there's no, power dynamic at play there's no you know you're my you know you're my man or you're my you know it's it's we we're with we we are with each other together 
You know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, uh, hearing you talk about sort of the um, the kind of ownership view of relationships, and you know, and, and it's um, it can be it can be easy to paint that as kind of a unique feature of monogamy and we see you know and and it's it's often the default like oh you know you're you're mine and um and often sort of the the jokes around uh you know um uh, around monogamy are around you know ownership is like oh you know um she you know um uh he he would never let me let me do that because you know he feels like uh, you like uh, i belong to him and yada 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 um but I, I think that that, um, that sneaks its way into non-monogamy just as much, you know. The, oh, yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's hard to to kind of uncouple that and just see uh, see people as as having their own individual uh, autonomy and agency, um, you know, and uh, a lot of the. Um, a lot of the kind of you know toxic models of uh, you know uh, a a non monogamous uh, a, a non monogamous long term relationship of you know like veto and gatekeeping and you know and, and sort of you know rules around having you know I I have to meet your partner and you know and I, I gotta make sure I like the, you know that kind of thing. Um, I I think that 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 ownership thing is is really hard for people to let go on both sides of non monogamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I, as much as some of us might be afraid of the people that we're closest to having free will and autonomy, I think, I mean, the reality is we all do. And I think the, the more quickly you realize that and come to terms with it, the better your relationships will be. I mean, not to say that everything's going to be transitory and, and, you know, (laughs) Like you, you should always resign yourself to the fact that you're going to potentially lose somebody. But you know, you give people freedom, and 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 if someone is with you, I think there is a a happiness and a freedom in knowing that they're with you because they choose to be with you, because they want to be with you, not because you're sort of controlling them into into being with you. Yeah. No, there's there's basically nothing that you can do to make sure that somebody will never leave you. And in fact, all of the actions that you take to try to control them and, and make that, uh, you know, uh, make that, that fiction a reality, all, they're, they're self-sabotaging. Those are things yeah. that, that will alienate you from your partner and ultimately push them away. I agree. But humans will mental gymnastic themselves into yes. thinking whatever it is they want to think to make themselves as comfortable as possible. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and I also think that that ownership model um, can come up in a lot of different ways that you were describing. And, you know, it can definitely come up in a kind of a more traditional swinger culture of talking about like the hall pass or, you know, asking, you know, can I kiss your partner kind of thing. And it's not you're not asking the person that you want to kiss, can I kiss you? You're asking the person who potentially this person belongs to if you can kiss them because right. there's that. And, you know, obviously in a kink dynamic, if there is actually <laughs> a sort of quote unquote ownership involved, if there's you know, a negotiated ownership. Yeah, exactly. Here. That's, that's going to be a different situation. Um, but yeah, that, 
that sort of like, oh, I was being courteous. And it's like, no, no, you were not. <laughs> um, you were tying into that model where I belong to this other person and, you know, therefore they are who matters, not yep. me. Yep. Well, I, I remember getting a message from someone on OkCupid oh, who God, wanted yeah. to date you and is like, I consider myself a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> consider yourself sloth. It's like, well, yeah. they don't date gentlemen, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what they're into. <laughs> Ah, well, this has been delightful. I want to make sure that we are respecting the time that you that you have, and thank you for carving it out uh, for us today. Of course, um, my pleasure. It's great to talk to you both. Before we close it up, I also just wanted to to mention about how you had been on the Billboard 2020 Pride list of industry shaping LGBTQ executives. <laughs> yes, that was a, a pretty awesome thing. I, I've uh, you know I'm a music geek and I've read Billboard ever since I've been able to afford it. So to to be in that magazine and you know on a, on a more like cheesy sort of uh, personal level to to be in there for some to be celebrated for something that I was ashamed of for such a long time uh, uh, is is just such a, a great thing to have happen. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, congratulations. That's really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so why don't you tell us uh, where our listeners can find you and all of the great stuff that you're doing? Sure. Uh, so uh, if you uh, would love to listen to Detoxicity, which is my podcast, uh, you can find it on just about every podcast platform in existence. Uh, the main site is detoxpod.podbean.com, um, but it is available everywhere else. Um, I can be followed on Instagram at uh, detoxpodguy. I am on Twitter at tismikejoseph. Uh, and uh, you can find out about all the other stuff that I do throughout those social channels. Well, that is awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Mike. Thank you, folks. I'm much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples. We give thanks to the Indigenous people who continue to live on these lands and care for them, along with the waters and all that is above and below. My novel, Waking Up Polyamorous, is now available as an audiobook. Yay! My narrator, Jacqueline Rendell, who is also a fabulous singer, songwriter, and composer, did an amazing job bringing the story to life. It, along with my sexy memoir, Yelling in Pasties, The Wet Coast Confessions of an Anxious Slut, is also available in ebook, at your favorite online retailer, or in paperback or audiobook at Amazon. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. I know it's annoying that you hear this on every podcast, but it really does make a difference. Uh, like getting getting other people to hear us. And visit patreon.com slash on the wet coast to contribute to our Patreon, and huge thanks to our awesome supporters who help make this podcast possible. You can follow us on Twitter at WetCoastCat, at SiriusFlick, at on the wet coast. Email comments or questions to contact at onthewetcoast.com and visit onthewetcoast.com for cats, blog, toy reviews, and more. Absolutely. <laughs> more dead air! Uh... <laughs>